As always, I'm your host, Garrison Morado, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, uh, Dr. Nick Wright from University College in London, uh, England. And Dr. Wright, thank you so much for joining the podcast. We appreciate you being here. Thank you very much for inviting me, Garrison. It's a great pleasure to be on the, on the podcast. Thank you very much for that. And Dr. Wright is an expert on uh, various subjects relating to British foreign policy, the European Union, uh, Northern Ireland, and other things. But Dr. Wright, could you give uh, just a brief introduction of yourself to the listeners about your academic background and some of the work that you do uh, for UCL? Absolutely. So I'm a, I'm a senior teaching fellow in EU politics at, at University College London. My particular areas of research interest are British, German, and EU foreign policy making. Um, I'm basically interested in how uh, nation states cooperate in foreign policy making and why they do so. But I've also, since 2016, have had a, a big interest in the impact and consequences of Brexit on the UK and on the EU, particularly around foreign policy and what it's going to mean for these two entities now that the UK is leaving the EU's foreign policy cooperation structures. And um, also very much interested in what's in Northern Ireland as a, as, a, as a sort of focal point for a lot of the Brexit debates and discussions and what developments there will mean for both the EU but also for the UK going forward, particularly in terms of the kind of long-term future of the Union. Perhaps, sir, could you give sort of the high-level overview of what brought us from 2016 with the vote to this point, uh, and we'll kind of go from there. The first thing to say, um, I would say, is, that, is, is to remember that the UK has, in fact, left the European Union. Um, that took place, uh, so as of the 1st of February, we were no longer a member state. Um, and uh, we are now in a period uh, of transition, uh, which will end on the 31st of December this year. And at that point, we will either have a new kind of trading arrangement, new free trade agreement with the EU, which will kind of encompass our new relationship, or we will be in what's referred to as a kind of no-deal territory, um, wherein our kind of relationships with uh, economic relationship with the, with the EU and other relationships with the EU will essentially need to be sort of re- rebuilt from the ground up. And as I'm sure a number of your listeners will be aware, that's been quite a it's been quite a torturous process to get to where we are. The Brexit referendum resulted in the resignation of David Cameron as Prime Minister, who was then succeeded by Theresa May, and she spent a good portion of the subsequent three and a half years when, when she was Prime Minister trying to get an agreement with the European Union around withdrawal. She did make a deal with the EU, but her own party particularly refused to back it, and this resulted ultimately in her resignation and her replacement by Boris Johnson, who was able to negotiate a slightly different version of uh, the Theresa May agreement with the EU in October last year. And we can maybe talk about some of the differences to the extent that there are any a little later on. But he then took that deal to the country as part of his election campaign. It was the centrepiece of his election campaign, won a very significant majority for the Conservatives on the back of that, of what he called his oven-ready Brexit deal. And then on the basis of that, we formally left the European Union earlier this year. 
And what we've seen in the period since the referendum has been essentially kind of a, a kind of a revolutionary moment, a period of deep, deep um, upheaval in British politics with traditional left-right alignments thrown up in the air with new dividing lines, particularly around the pro and anti-Brexit vote. These are still having sort of resonances and, and, and long, longer-term ramifications today in British politics. It's perhaps a bit early to say that we're seeing a complete realignment of British politics, but certainly the election results in 2019 when Boris Johnson won a majority of over 80 seats in the House of Commons in the UK suggests a very significant switch in terms of voter alignment with a lot of traditional Labour voters moving to support the Conservatives and a, a kind of a divide growing up between the so-called left-behinds, people living in small towns outside the big metropolitan areas and so-called metropolitan cosmopolitan elites, people who lived in the cities, younger people, you know, students, etc, etc. So there's been a big kind of a series of cleavages have opened up in British politics as a result of the, uh, of, of, of the Brexit referendum. But these tensions have been in British politics for quite a long time. And where we will end up after all of this remains to be seen. From a political science perspective, it's fascinating to watch, but it's also quite it's quite stressful to live through at the same time, you could say. <clears throat> I, I can understand yeah, I, and sympathize with it to a certain degree because there is a remarkable parody or parallel between the United States and Britain from 2016, uh, when in 2016, Britain voting to leave the European Union and in the same year, Donald Trump winning the presidency of the United States and opening up a similar realignment yeah. politically on this side of the Atlantic, where traditionally Democrat blue collar yeah. workers in the upper Midwest or the Rust Belt suddenly shifting alignment to a more populist Republican Party even as the Republican Party begins losing some of the suburban, more well-heeled voters uh, and, and some of the more affluent yeah. areas that have made up the coalition since the 1980s with Ronald Reagan. So very interesting things going on politically in the Western world. But I want to drill down into several several key areas of Brexit. Uh, and one of them is the, the withdrawal agreement that Boris Johnson agreed to with the European Union uh, late last year, that one of the key issues, it seems to me, and obviously you're the expert and you can, you can take this which direction you want to go, uh, is that it laid down the idea that Northern Ireland would be part of the EU's single market and customs union, allowing freely Correct. unpoliced trade to go across its border with the Republic of Ireland, and that that was a major sticking point of negotiations to that point to prevent tensions from being renewed on that island. That seemed to be the moment when the dam broke and a lot of unity and agreement was able to be reached within the Conservative Party and with the EU to move Brexit forward. However, in the last several months, it seems that Prime Minister Johnson is sort of reneging on that, perhaps as a, a negotiation tactic, perhaps truly rethinking the idea. Could you please unpack a little bit what this internal market bill, I believe it's called, is that, that Johnson's pushing right now and, and how it impacts the withdrawal agreement? Yeah. I mean, just, just, just to, kind of, to go back a bit, I mean, I think it's just important to kind of touch on what the what the, what the withdrawal agreement was really covering. And you're absolutely right, so the, the kind of key, basically the kind of key divorce issues around money, around citizens' rights, and particularly around Northern Ireland. And the big, big, big issue is that the decision on, by the UK to leave the, the customs union and the single market means there has to be a border somewhere between the UK and the EU. Now, under different circumstances, one would expect that border to be a land border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Um, however, given the unique political situation on the island of Ireland and the challenge that are faced there, and given the fact that the Good Friday Agreement was built around the idea that essentially 
there there would be no effective border between north and south that was a kind of if you like a key understanding a key underpinning of the agreement that made that aspect of of the british withdrawal extremely complicated and essentially what was agreed last year was that there would be a border down the irish sea and this would be essentially a kind of a regulatory border between great britain and northern ireland while so northern ireland remains part of the united kingdom but in terms of as you say the customs union and the single market is still governed very much by eu law and that was designed very much to ensure there would be no need for customs checks or any other border infrastructure between Northern Ireland and the Republic, which, as you know, would have been a sort of very significant challenge politically and economically if that took place. Now, obviously, I mean, there's, there's debate over here at the moment as to whether the government, which then campaigned on the withdrawal agreement as part of its election campaign, whether sort of MPs that supported it in, in the vote in, in, in January... Uh, whether they properly understood what they were signing up for, because now a lot of them are saying, well, actually, this seems to be totally unfair. This border that's been posed internally on the UK without its uh, without its say so. But the reality is that this is what uh, this was the compromise that Johnson agreed with Leo Varadkar first of all, and then subsequently with the rest of the EU. So what we see with the internal market bill. It's quite interesting. The first of all, it's entirely reasonable for the UK to develop a new structure for to manage its internal market for the simple reason that it has withdrawn from the EU and therefore it's withdrawn from all the kind of the structures and the legal processes and uh, platforms that were in place to govern uh, sort of trade and commerce, and which it helped create in the, under the, the auspices of the EU single market. So now it needs to replace those within the UK with something else. And so there's, that is a, a legitimate reason for having an internal market bill. However, within that bill were a number of provisions pertaining specifically to Northern Ireland. The government has essentially taken for itself the power to overwrite bits of the withdrawal agreement unilaterally if it feels it, that the EU is treating it unfairly, if it feels that, uh, that these are causing uh, sort of unnecessary divisions between Great Britain and Northern Ireland down the Irish Sea. And so this has become very problematic. Uh, essentially, the UK is saying, well, you know, we can't have divides and splits in the country. But the EU is saying, look, you've signed up to these things. You've made commitments in an international treaty based around a certain understanding of, of Northern Ireland status. And these are the consequences. The consequences are that there will no longer be necessary entirely frictionless trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK for the simple reason that the EU needs to preserve the integrity of its single market. Now, this has been clear all the way down the line. This is the challenge that Theresa May tried to resolve with her compromise of the so-called backstop and by keeping the whole of the UK uh, aligned with the customs the customs union and single market, but this was rejected uh, by, uh, by by her own party. So we have essentially a conservative party that is in government that seems to want to renege on a deal that it has made because it either knew at the time that it didn't like the small print and was planning to renege on it later on anyway, or it has suddenly discovered that uh, these these are problems and challenges and has now decided to renege on it. Now, there, whether or not it's going to go the whole way, is that it remains to be seen. Whether or not this is simply a negotiating tactic to try and extract further concession, concessions out of the EU, you know, could, it, you know, that could also be part of it. But, but the big problem is it has created a very deep sense of resentment, particularly on the EU side, about whether or not Boris Johnson and his government can be trusted to maintain it, so to live up to the commitments that they've made. And one of the things that is of concern is that it's barely a year, it's not even a year since the, since the withdrawal agreement was agreed. And so it creates a negative dynamic in the negotiations. It potentially has ramifications for the UK's sort of trade relations with countries beyond beyond Europe as well.
there's really two major segments of negotiation that had to be completed in order to fulfill Brexit. The first was the regulatory framework, which you've been discussing, of where the customs union and border, so to speak, of trade will exist within UK region. And the second is the actual trade deal. Uh, which follows with the European Union. Now, that that is what the Johnson government expected to be focusing on this summer, trying to rush to beat a deadline, which is December 31st, uh, if I'm correct, uh, for a trade deal with the EU. Does that trade deal negotiation, is it derailed, would you say, because of these new controversies regarding what we thought was already completed on, on the regulatory framework? Um, to, to give very very good and pertinent questions, I mean, first of all, just very quickly on the on the deadline for the trade agreement, it's actually significantly earlier than the thirty first of December for the okay. simple reason that the trade deal has to be ratified by obviously the UK Parliament, but also by the European Parliament, I and see. so we're looking at probably mid November at the latest to have some kind of deal down on paper, so to give to give, to give both sides sufficient time to kind of approve it and then to make sure it goes through. You know, sufficient parliamentary scrutiny, so, that, so there's even less time if it's going to be ready by, by by the 31st December. So, I mean, I think the thing to say first of all about the negotiations is that they had made very little progress even before the internal market bill was was introduced. There seemed to be essentially a profound difference of philosophy, if you like. Essentially, the UK position has been driven by what uh, Peter Foster writes the Financial Times, or like a, essentially the UK's pivot to sovereignty. And everything is seen, it seems, through the prism of, well, how does this affect the UK's ability to act independently, to, have to, to act as a sovereign power? And the idea that you might actually need to have some kind of compromise uh, to have any kind of agreement and that you may therefore need to quote-unquote, surrender a little bit of your sovereignty in order to achieve that has been anathema. Now, what the, the, I think what the internal market bill has done is actually just made that even more difficult because it's called into question the current government's willingness to live up to its commitments. It's interesting that just sort of a, a few hours ago, there was a suggestion that the UK is making some movement on, on fishing rights and fishing quotas, which has uh, been a very significant issue in the negotiations. You know, fishing represents something like one billion pounds worth of GDP for the UK so it's not a massive amount but symbolically it's huge and this has been one of the big sticking points and the UK has basically wanted to say and that was actually one of the driving reasons for Brexit originally correct was fishing right and some of the voters yeah. yeah yeah So that's a, so, so getting getting some kind of agreement on fisheries and some kind of agreement on fishing quotas has, has has been very problematic. But there may be maybe some movement there. But the big the big challenge within all of this like in terms of the, the free trade agreement has essentially been around what's called level playing field. And without wishing to go into them in great detail, but also it's not a massive area of expertise. This is essentially, if you like, the kind of the rules governing. The, the competitive relationship between the UK and the EU. And the EU has offered the UK uh, an agreement that's not dissimilar to the free trade agreement with Canada, but we hear quite a lot of that. The UK often says, we just want what, what Canada's got, except the UK is going to have something that would have something potentially significantly better in the sense that it would have a deal involving zero tariffs uh, and zero quotas, which no other country has got with the EU. The quid pro quo from the EU side is to ensure that the UK is not able to use subsidies to uh, enable unfair competition, to enable its its companies to export into the to EU single market at an advantage over its European competitors. And this has become what's put, this has really become the kind of the big 
big challenging uh, challenging issue. And that relates back to the Internal Market Bill because one of the parts of the withdrawal agreement that the Internal Market Bill is seeking to, if you like, to rewrite or change is the idea that Northern Ireland will be governed by the EU subsidy regime, um, but that the rest of the UK shouldn't. But apparently, of course, you know, the, the potential one and potential interpretation is that if you are a Great Britain-based company with subsidiaries in uh, in Northern Ireland, anything that you do, anything the government does to support those companies could be perceived by the EU side as being unfair competition in Northern Ireland and therefore affecting the single market. So it's all, I mean, it's, it's, it's insanely complex and detailed, but there's basically a kind of a, a point around philosophy here about where does sovereignty end? Where do you compromise on sovereignty in terms of actually achieving an agreement? Now, there is a potential landing zone around level playing field around, around subsidies, uh, and that comes partly because the UK recently signed a free trade agreement with Japan, which has quite strong provisions on on subsidies and on prevention of unfair state subsidies of, of, of national businesses and corporations. And this, so the EU has said to the UK, look, you're basically you're making a big fuss about us having a demanding a kind of greater greater say or greater influence over the subsidy regime between the two of us. And yet you've already got these provisions in this free trade agreement with Japan, which are actually stronger than what we were pr- proposing. So why can we not use that as a basis? So potentially potentially there is room there for something to come out of that if the UK is willing to, to give some ground. The big problem, though, I think is political in the sense that the way the negotiations have been framed is this kind of zero-sum, we've got to beat the European Union, the UK has got to come out sort of stronger to show that Brexit was worth it. Any form of what we might consider rational, pragmatic compromise may be seized upon by particular particular groups as, as demonstrating that the UK somehow surrendered to the EU when, in fact, uh, you know, the, the compromise was necessary to get a deal through. And this is one of the big big challenges. It has become so politicised. There's so many, if you like, totemic issues that, that are now there that, that all all feed into this narrative of the UK will never surrender to the European Union. That it becomes very problematic to make uh, make the kind of concessions necessary to get a deal. Building off of that political question, there is that that tension in public relations, as you said, between Boris Johnson on the one hand and the EU on the other, and Boris needing to maintain a, a core amount of unity in his party and his constituency and perhaps ward off some of the old Brexiteers like Nigel Farage and others who are yeah. waiting and watching to pounce on any notion of, of, like you said, compromise that would undermine sovereignty. But there is another political side of this I wouldn't mind getting your, your opinion on, if you don't mind, which is the internal politics of the devolved governments inside of the UK, yeah. which it's no secret that the Scottish National Party, the ruling party of Scotland, uh, under Nicola Sturgeon, has desired to leave the United Kingdom even before Brexit was a thing. And certainly Scotland voting overwhelmingly to remain in the EU during that referendum sort of feels like it's being dragged out uh, against its yeah. will, I would say. is probably a fair interpretation. And I can't help but wonder if Northern Ireland doesn't feel a bit like a ping pong on the ping pong table during these negotiations as well. So what is the current outlook for, frankly, not to be uh, dystopian about, but the UK's survival as a united geopolitical entity, you know, with Scottish independence and perhaps with some some resentment or some lingering suspicion in Northern Ireland and perhaps even in Wales. Yeah, I think it's a very, again, very, very pertinent questions. And one of the things to, to sort of draw attention to for your listeners is the fact that in the last few months, the devolution settlement in the UK, which for many years didn't you know, there were some tensions between regional governments and the central government in London, but the kind of the structures seemed relatively sound. As a consequence of 
COVID and the pandemic, those tensions have really, really, really been brought to the fore for the simple reason that health is one of the issues which has been devolved to regional governments. And so when the national government in Westminster makes an announcement, when the health secretary makes an announcement, he's actually only speaking for England. And he has opposite numbers in Cardiff and Wales and, and, and in Edinburgh and Scotland and in Northern Ireland. The kind of health ministers there all will make their own uh, announcements in terms of how their particular jurisdictions are going to deal with COVID. And what this has done has really thrown up the kind of differences in, in viewpoint between between the particular governments at the, at the regional level and what is going on, what is going on centrally. And this only serves to highlight as well the differences and tensions over Brexit. And you mentioned sort of Scotland and Northern Ireland. If we talk, talk about Scotland briefly first, I mean, what you essentially have, the Scottish view has always been, look, we voted to stay in the European Union. We are being dragged out by a kind of an extremist English nationalist viewpoint. We're being dragged out of the EU against our will. This is a classic example of how, you know, Scotland can never really do what it wants to do when it's kind of under the heel of London. And therefore, this is a great reason for us to, to chart our own path. And what we have seen, particularly in the last few months, in terms of attitudes to how London and particularly Boris Johnson has, is perceived and how he's, how he's dealt with COVID as well, is the emergence of a small but ongoing uh, majority in favour of Scottish independence. Now, it's not massively significant yet, but certainly polls over the last few months have seen a consistent lead for those in favour of leaving. Now, why that matters is because next year we have Scottish parliamentary elections, and it is extremely likely that the Scottish Nationalist Party is going to get a majority, and possibly quite a significant majority. They will be able to point to Boris Johnson's mishandling of COVID. They'll be able to point to the government's mishandling of Brexit, potentially also a no deal uh, situation with the EU to say, look how badly London is handling things. We couldn't possibly do things any worse on our own. Let's have another go at this. And that becomes more complicated for the fact that um, it is in Westminster's gift in London as to whether or not Scotland would be allowed to hold another independence referendum. And famously, this was supposed to have been settled in 2014 for a generation. But I think it would become very, very difficult for London to dodge that particular question if the SNP are returned with a significant with a majority, in particular a significant one. And then it becomes a question of well, do you allow the Scots to vote and potentially vote to leave and what will that mean? And Boris Johnson certainly does not want to go down in history as the Prime Minister who effectively broke the union. So we've got big tensions there with potential with a potential pathway ultimately to Scottish independence. That would be a very significant moment, uh, obviously, for the UK, but also for, for British politics. And then you have Northern Ireland, as you said, you've described it as a ping pong. Um, and I think that's quite, that's quite apt. I mean, Northern Ireland has essentially been the kind of the focal point, the crucible through which Brexit has, pre has played out. Because on the one hand, you have the, the range of promises and commitments that were made on the part of those in favour of leave. You know, some uplands, it's going to be great for, for, for Britain's future, we'll be free, we'll be able to sort stride the global stage as buccaneering state etc etc be able to do what we want we'll have our, our independence back and on the other side you have the reality of what brexit means in terms of northern ireland how do you manage the, the situation there how do you manage the border how do you manage a peace process that's got a lot of development to do and there's a lot more work is required and potentially a situation which could lead back to all those tensions that we thought left behind and northern ireland is, is, it's also quite interesting because it has been I would suggest very poorly represented in the kind of debates domestically around Brexit over the last few years. So what you had um, after the referendum, very early days, you had the 
First Minister and Deputy First Minister of Northern Ireland, who both wrote to, you know, representing the DUP and Sinn Féin, the two sort of main parties there, both wrote to Prime Minister and said, look, Northern Ireland's interests must be properly represented. Shortly after that, the whole edifice of Northern Irish Steve the Royal Government collapsed. And for a number of years, and North, the, kind of the main voice of Northern Ireland in terms of British politics was that of the DUP in Westminster. And they became particularly strong in 2017 after Theresa May's failed election gamble left her party short of a majority. And lo and behold, the DUP's MPs in Westminster essentially became the kind of, the, if you like, the kingmakers. They kind of held the balance of power. And they were pushing for a kind of all sorts of things, but particularly rejecting Theresa May's deal that would have created a so-called backstop in Northern Ireland that would have ensured that Northern Ireland sort of remained protected, whatever the kind of future future outcome of, of the negotiations between the UK and the EU. The problem was uh, that that meant that actually in Northern Ireland, the kind of the particular issues on the ground were not really addressed, so they were certainly only represented from one particular perspective. So Northern Ireland has found itself both, in the, if you like, in the front line of Brexit and what it means, but also lacking a serious voice or influence in any of the negotiations. But something else has been taking place in Northern Ireland, which I think is really interesting and kind of longer term, has been a kind of a gradual but significant change in terms of voter attitudes. So for a long time, and I mean, Northern Ireland remains politically very tribal between the unionists on the one hand and sort of nationalists and republicans on the other. But what has emerged, particularly in the last year, particularly in the last general election in 2019, is this kind of growing middle ground of people who reject both sides, who are basically fed up with tribal politics. This is particularly amongst younger voters who have started to kind of look at alternatives to the, the unionist side, the alternatives to the Republicans and the Nationalists and are pushing for you know, a kind of a, a more thoughtful and pragmatic approach to politics. And alongside that has come this growing sense that maybe, maybe we need to start having a conversation about what a united Ireland might look like. Now, this is not to say it's any it's likely to happen anytime soon, but there are obviously consent mechanisms within the Good Friday Agreement that would potentially allow for a vote or what's called a border poll, a vote on, on, on unifying Ireland at some point further down the line. And these conversations have gone from kind of being taking place on the, on the fringes of politics to becoming much more mainstream. One of the things I think we're going to potentially see in the future is particularly if the consequence of the, of the Brexit process start to have more negative effects in, in Northern Ireland is a potential discussion about, well, what actually would that mean? What would it mean if we do see unification on the island? How would that play out? How would that work? And so, again, there's no guarantee that that's going to happen, but I think it's more likely now than it was four or five years ago. I think Brexit has done as acted as kind of almost like a centrifuge, which is starting to spin the different component parts of the UK further and further away from the sort of, if you like, the English centre. This would have an interesting electoral impact in terms of England, because if you hive Scotland off, if you hive Northern Ireland off, they were no longer part of the kind of the United Kingdom. You have a smaller country, but with a much it becomes much harder then for opposition parties to form a, a majority. And so that is, you know, in terms of parties that espouse a, a growing sense of English nationalism, there are potentially very significant electoral impacts for that as well. That was a very good description. It was a fascinating look at the, the internal machinations of, uh, of what's going on uh, during the Brexit time period. And I know our listeners uh, appreciate that and the amount of uh, depth there was to that. And, I do want to be respectful of your time, sir, but if we could fit in just a couple more questions uh, on the podcast, that would be that'd be excellent. So sort of broadening the perspective um, out from uh, internal UK politics, uh, you mentioned that you also have done a great deal of work uh, studying and analyzing the European Union, and in particular Germany. Now, to me, that's significant because the Germans 
you know, no one wants to say this. Every member of the EU is an equal and full member has voting rights and many decisions have to be done by unanimous consent. But honestly, day to day, I think most people recognize that Germany is the driving force of the European Union and the German chancellorship is the driving force of Germany. And the German chancellorship will soon be open and Angela Merkel will be retiring after a very long, very storied career at the helm of Germany. And in many respects, I think she's kind of come to represent the EU more readily in the minds of, of, of Americans, people on this side of the Atlantic, than even, say, Ursula von der Leyen or Juncker, uh, and so on. With her seat opening up and with Brexit potentially heading towards a no-deal outcome at the end of the year and, and remaining an open question maybe well into next year and beyond, what do you see as the future of, of the EU stance towards this issue? Who, who takes the lead? Is it the next German chancellor? Does it become an increasingly more vague and technocratic perspective from within the EU itself. What does it look like from the EU side heading into the next 12 months? Gosh, that's a very good question. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that Brexit is maybe sixth or seventh down the list of EU priorities now. In fact, it has been for a while. Certainly in the UK, we tend to think of everything is seen through the prism of Brexit. But actually, the EU's had a whole range of big, big, big challenges that it's trying to deal with. And Brexit has become a kind of an ongoing annoyance as much as anything else. So if you think about it, you've had the kind of the Eurozone crisis, you've had the migration crisis, you've had the pandemic, you've had an attempt to create some kind of sort of big sort of financial and economic support package to help states recover from the pandemic. You've got issues with uh, serious with Russia and the Crimea. There's obviously the challenge of a much more powerful China that's emerging, etc. So there's a whole, not to mention the climate crisis, there's a whole range of big, big, big issues that EU leaders are trying to get their heads around alongside having to deal with the departure of the UK. That's the first thing to mention. That obviously therefore means that whoever is the next German German Chancellor is going to have a huge, a huge number of issues to deal with. Um, Obviously, the big problem for whoever follows Merkel is that they're going to be following Merkel. Um, I don't know. I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with Manchester United in the UK, but obviously for many, many years, their manager was surrounded. But it's taken, and I I say this as a Manchester United supporter, so I get quite (laughs) quite painful quite the last few years. Um, Various managers who followed him have have really, really struggled. And it's not, you know, it's not difficult to imagine that certainly in Germany, the next few few years, it's it's going to be a bit, it's going to be a bumpy ride for whoever takes over as chancellor, simply because they're not Merkel, simply because they've got to learn the job. And also because German politics is in a very significant state of flux, which seen uh, obviously the rise and, and gradual decline of the kind of far right um, alternative for Deutschland Party, kind of similar in many ways to through UKIP in the UK or maybe the Tea Party in the States. Um, but you've also got the emergence of the Greens as a very significant alternative on progressive centre and left to the kind of traditional Social Democrats. So German politics is very much in a state of flux, and the candidates to take over from Merkel are not necessarily perceived, you know, overwhelmingly positively. And there's also no guarantee whoever follows her as the leader of Germany's CDU will automatically be the candidate of the right for Chancellor next in the next election. That may well be someone from the Bavarian sister parties. So there's all sorts of things going on there. But what this does suggest, though, is that the person who's very likely to seek to take on the mantle of kind of European leadership is very much the current president of France, Emmanuel Macron. Been in power for some time. Obviously, he's facing an election of his own in the near term. But he would very much see himself as being 
a kind of representative of what you know of what the EU should be in terms of sort of leading on the world stage, and I suspect will very much seek to to bolster his leadership role. Now, Germany will always have a very significant role just by virtue of its location, its size, its economy. It is yeah, all states are equal, but some states more equal than others, and that very much applies to Germany. Um, and, and Angela Merkel has very definitely played on that and been able to use her influence in that sense to bring in quite a lot of stability, whether that's positive or negative, is a bit for another time. What that means, though, is that the EU is going to face continuing challenges to its ability to deal with, with crises, both you know within Europe and, and further afield. But that doesn't necessarily change. I mean, the, the EU, particularly when dealing with foreign policy, is a consensus-based uh, organisation. It requires unanimity to take serious decisions. And the challenges it faces today in doing that are going to remain. Maybe some of the politics will become a bit sharper. But actually, uh, in that sense, I don't think there's necessarily going to be a lot of difference. Really, it's about how the member states themselves manage to sort of craft compromises in terms of their, of their own positions. And the other thing, of course, to remember is that the EU is you know, primarily economically focused if we're thinking about strictly about security and defence. NATO is the key organisation there. And that means we come back to obviously what's going on on your side of the Atlantic in terms of who the next president is going to be, because that's going to have a big impact in terms of the longevity and stability of the of transatlantic security arrangements and the NATO alliance. And I think, you know, that when you combine that with the kind of tensions with Turkey and the Eastern Mediterranean, at the moment, NATO member state that has, you know, got a lot of a lot of difficulties with other NATO member states. We start to see a, a very challenging international picture for uh, European states and for whoever is going to take over from Angela Merkel. Well, and dovetailing on that for probably our last question of the day, because as I said, I do want to be respectful of your time or I could keep this going all afternoon um, is uh, and hopefully so we'll be able to have you on the podcast again to to discuss some of these matters further on down down the line if your schedule permits. But one of the ways I want to close out the day is to broaden that picture even further. Still, as you mentioned in passing, the transatlantic relations in a post-Brexit era, uh, in an era after the American uh, presidential election, which obviously we don't know the result, signs at the moment yeah. are obviously pointing pretty consistently to the possibility of a Biden-Harris administration replacing the current uh, the current one. Uh, but just presuming that it is next year, it is 2021, if somehow, you know, uh, by a sequence of shrewd negotiation and, and maybe a, a little bit of luck, the British government is able to put a nail in a deal to get it done, uh, to fully finish the trade exit with the EU, and they find themselves independent. What well, what are the priorities for a, a newly independent Britain, one that is, like you said, very protective of its sovereignty in a world that's becoming very, very chaotic? You have, as you said, the, the Turkish situation, there's the war in Armenia and Azerbaijan right now. There is uh, an EU, like you said, very much distracted. You know, Russia is still off on the eastern flank. And the entire world seems to be slowly being squeezed into a new a new Cold War standoff of sorts, this time between the US and China, particularly on technology, on trade, on human rights. Where is Britain's place in this vast and, and sort of chaotic scene that it will find upon its full exit from the EU? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question and one that is has occupied a lot of certainly analytical and sort of academic minds in the, in, the, in the last couple of years. Although, interestingly, it received very little attention as a dis- discussion point during the actual referendum campaign itself. I mean, I think the short answer is it will find the UK a little more isolated and a little more lonely and therefore in need of 
strengthening existing friendships and relationships and reaching out for new ones. Now, there's a lot of discourse at the moment around the notions of global Britain, although no one's really clear what that actually means. There's a big defence and foreign policy review underway at the moment uh, in terms of trying to, I suppose, add some, add some meat to those particular bones, to that particular slogan. But again, it's not really clear what the UK wants. But I think what the UK needs to do is do what it can to bolster the existing international rules-based system. Because the UK is essentially a medium-sized power. Its influence in the world very much rests on its capacity to trade off these these sort of institutional memberships, you know, such as NATO, particularly the United Nations and the Security Council, IMF, etc., etc., etc. It needs to be using those to ensure it can buttress this system because if these systems break down, it becomes much harder for the UK because it doesn't have the same capacities as these emerging superpowers, existing superpowers. And this is obviously one of the reasons why, you know, EU membership was so potentially significant because it allowed the UK, it allowed to sort of magnify the UK's diplomatic and global reach on the basis of being part of this group of states. So I think whatever happens, the UK is going to need at some point, maybe it's going to be a few years down the line, but to re-establish some kind of positive foreign policy and defence relationship with the European Union, you know, assuming the EU survives over the next 20 odd years. Um, and it also needs to do what it can to really bolster NATO and make sure NATO is once again relevant. Like it's got the diplomatic network, it's got the uh, the history in terms of doing all this. The problem I think at the moment lies very much in, in terms of its credibility to do that. The approach of the current government and particularly the kind of nationalist tone to a lot of what's said does not suggest a country that is particularly keen to rebuild relations, particularly with its nearest partners on the other side of the, other side of the channel. And I think that's going to be very problematic. But for the UK to prosper, it needs as much of the world as possible to remain signed up to and committed to existing structures of international government governance. This is not about a kind of global government. It's not about having one state in charge. But what it is is about states living up to their international commitments to ensure some kind of predictability and certainty. Because when that starts to drop off, it becomes, you know, classic realist theory, a system of anarchy. It's about the power of the strongest really, really matters. And that's going to be problematic for the UK for a whole variety of reasons. So I think, uh, you know, if, if pragmatic heads can prevail in London, then we'll start to see a strategy that's built much more around, even if only quiet, but nonetheless, the kind of cooperation and rebuilding relationships with partners in the EU and, and really striving to show that the UK is not retreating into some kind of isolationism, but is very much committed to a kind of, if you like, a a positive international role. And that's going to be very, very important as a message for the UK to, to communicate, but also to then back up with clear policy and clear actions, such as you know strong support for uh, sort of UN peacekeeping and really kind of working hard to pursue reform of the Security Council and to really kind of make those kind of forums relevant and, and pertinent again. Dr. Wright, it has been an absolute pleasure to learn from you, to have you on today, and uh, to inform our listeners on a wide variety of very complicated interlocking subjects, but you made it very clear, very understandable, and we really appreciate your expertise and your generosity of time to come on. So thank you so much for coming on the New Diplomatist Podcast. Really appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure, Garrison. Thank you very much. I'd love to come back. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to chat. We absolutely will have you back. Absolutely.